since my baby left me Well, I found a new place to dwell Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street That heartbreak hotel this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about music here on the show. And we've heard from you. You love it, too. And this is a story about the time a young, unknown 19-year-old kid named Elvis Presley walked into Sam Phillips' Sun Recording Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. And we broadcast an hour south of Memphis in the beautiful town of Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss. Phillips thought Elvis was one of the most introverted people who'd ever walked into his studio, but also one of the bravest. Here's Greg Hengler. Memphis, 1954, and Sun Recording Studio boss Sam Phillips dreams of discovering a new sound, a blend of the best black music and the best of white music. In an extract from one of his Elvis biographies, America's most preeminent writer on popular music, Peter Gorelnik, takes up the story. Sam Phillips had been thinking more and more that the key lay in connection between the races and what they had in common far more than what kept them apart. But far more to the point was the spiritual connection that he had always known to exist between black and white, the cultural heritage that they all shared. Let's kick this story off with the man himself, Sam Phillips. Well, hello. And welcome to the cradle of rock and roll. Here's Peter Gorelnik and music historian Jason King. Sam Phillips was three days short of 27 when he opened the doors to the Memphis Recording Service. He started the label sound three years later. So many earlier producers like Sam Phillips, they're basically operating in an A&R capacity, looking for promising talent, bringing them into the studio and crafting a unique sound for them. From Sam Phillips' point of view, if you weren't doing something different, you weren't doing anything. He was looking for individualism in the extreme, as he would say. When I wanted to open up my recording studio, I didn't tell too many people about what I had in mind because I didn't know whether I'd be able to pull it off. I didn't have enough money to buy the equipment that I wanted, and I didn't know whether I could pay the rent. But I knew that I was going to get me some black folks in that studio one way or the other. I recorded Roscoe Gordon, B.B. King, The Howling Wolf, Little Junior Parker. Here's country music singer-songwriter Marty Stewart. Memphis in the mid-50s was a black cat's town. It was about soul. Nashville didn't rock. Memphis did. Here's guitarist Jeff Beck. Sam Phillips was so smitten with the sound of black music and black blues, but he knew that he'd need a white guy to put it out there, and uh, he found a guy called Elvis Presley. <laughs> Here's Elvis's first ever recording, My Happiness. Evening shadows make me blue with Elvis, I knew when he walked in the door, baby. If anybody can do this, I believe this is the person that can do it. There was something that he heard in this kid, something that was unique about him. Here's Elvis archivist 
Ernst Jorgensen. But as the uh, session begins, Elvis starts singing all these country songs and pop standards. And Sam realizes, hey, this is not going to work. He has a wonderful voice, but it's so insecure. Just as long as I'm with you, my happiness. So I went in and talked to him and said, hey, we still are not where I believe we should be, and I think we all agree on this. And so... Yeah, I turned around, went back in the control room, and the next thing I know, Elvis cut out on That's All Right, Mama. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do, that's all right. And man, the minute I heard that thing, I said, Lord, hey. If we weren't going to make it on that, honey, there was nothing I could do ever. Here's B.B. King. So I used to hear Elvis, and they would be singing and playing, and they sound good, but they was playing white music. That's all right, Mama, that's all right for you. When he did that, I was, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's, this, is, this is all right. How do you categorize that's all right? It's just a magic moment. And it's truly original in that it doesn't sound like anything else in the marketplace. I'm leaving town, baby. I'm leaving town for sure. Well, then you won't be bothered with me hanging round your door. But that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, mama. Anyway, do. To Sam Phillips, it was always about freeing, freeing the soul of his singers. Most of these people who came to him, like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Roy Orbison, they all shared this enormous insecurity. His magic was to pull it out of them, whatever it was that they had inside. I believe you're doing me wrong and now I qualities of Sam Phillips first saw in him, he continued to show till the end of his career. When you know that you have been able to give these people the inspiration to display their God-given talent and to be proud of it, I think that is the essence of Sun Records. I don't care if I die. I said flip, flop, and fly. Don't care if I die. Don't ever leave me. Don't ever say goodbye. And great job on that. Greg Hengler is always in a love story of a sort. And as always, we love doing our music stories here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our best five stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Elvis Presley, Sam Phillips' story, Memphis's story, here on Our American Stories. Wise men say Only fools run
return to Our American Stories, and we're joined now by one of our favorite best-selling authors and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, Brad Meltzer. His most recent book, The First Conspiracy, is his first stab at nonfiction, and it's about a secret plot to kill George Washington. I found this story nearly a decade ago in the place where all good stories hide, which is in the footnotes. And I remember going through that footnote and seeing the words that said something like there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. And I remember stopping on that and going, is that real? Is that fake? Is that nonsense? What is it? And it was real. In 1776, there really was a secret plot to kill George Washington. When George Washington found out about it, he gathered up those responsible. He built a gallows. He took one of the main co-conspirators and he hanged him in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, was like, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. And uh, I became obsessed with this story. And the first thing I did is I went to Pulitzer Prize winning author Joseph Ellis, who wrote one of the great George Washington biographies. And I said, you know the story about to kill Washington? He said, I know the story. He said, but the reason it's hard to research is it's a story about George Washington's spies. And you can find out, he explained, exactly how many slaves George Washington owned, but you'll never find all his spies. By its nature, he told me, what you're searching for will forever be elusive. But he said, you got to try. He's like, at the best case scenario, you get a book out of it. At the worst, you, uh, you have an adventure. And I love an adventure. And I'll tell you that the first thing I did is I called my friend Josh Mensch. And when we did a TV show, many people know my the shows that I used to do on the History Channel. One was called Decoded and one was called Lost History. And one of the things we did on Lost History is we searched for lost historical artifacts. And on the very first episode, we told the story of the famous flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero on 9-11. Everyone knows that famous photograph of the firefighters raising the flag. Well... We were, the flag 24 hours later went missing, and it was gone for over a decade. And we wanted to get it back. So we told the story of the missing flag, who had seen it last, where it was. And four days after that first episode aired, a man walked into a fire station in Washington State and said, I saw the show Lost History. This is the 9-11 flag. I want to return it. It actually worked. And we spent nearly a year authenticating this flag. We worked with the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit. They, we got to uh, authenticate it and unveil it in, on the 15th anniversary of 9-11 in the 9-11 Museum, where it is still on display. One of the most amazing, humbling moments of my life. And, and the truth was, we got a lot of credit for it, but the credit was for the whole team. And that team was led by a man named Josh Mensch, who was an award-winning documentarian. And he was our best researcher, our best writer. And I said to him, I want to do the secret plot to kill George Washington. It's going to be hard to research. You want to jump down the rabbit hole with me? And he said yes. And that's where the book started. And what was really interesting to us as we really got into the plot is what happened and, and how it kind of unfolded. It was, it was a plot that really starts with George Washington had his own private bodyguards. And he had asked all of his top military leaders, he said, give me your four best men. He wanted the best of the best. George Washington personally narrowed it down to about 50 men. And those became what they called the General's Guard, some called the Commander's Guard. But the name that stuck was this title, the Lifeguards, because part of their job was to guard George Washington's life. And these were the men 
who turned on George Washington. These were the one men who were in the plot to come after George Washington. And it was a stunning revelation when we found that out for me. Uh, what I thought was so amazing is what George Washington does when he, they start getting wind of what's going on is he launches a secret committee that no one knows about. And he puts eventually John Jay in charge of the three men who are eventually in, in working in this committee. It's called the Committee on Conspiracies. And that's their job, to find out the conspiracies, find out who's plotting against them. And what's amazing is uh, it's led by John Jay, who eventually becomes the first Supreme Court justice. But at the time, in 1776, John Jay is just getting started. And he starts knocking on doors, trying to find suspects, pulling them out, interrogating them. What he's doing in the process is he's building America's first counterintelligence agency. And you, I can tell you that right now people will say, oh, that the precursor to the CIA is the OSS. It's not. It actually traces back to this moment and the plot to go after Washington. In fact, right now, in CIA headquarters in Arlington, um, in Langley, I should say, there is a room dedicated to John Jay, who they call the founding father of counterintelligence. And so you'll see that this plot also gives us the birth of counterintelligence in America, because we learn, and George Washington learns, you don't just need a good offense, a good army to win the war, you need a good defense too. You need to know what's coming. You need that intelligence. And what was, I think, fascinating to me as we looked into the story, you know, George Washington is one of the most, arguably the most famous American who ever lived. But we also, just as oddly, know the least about him as a person. He's not like Jefferson or John Adams, who writes these flowing letters home so we know all of his feelings. George Washington played everything close to the chest. Barely, you know, on the day that they, you know, they hang this man in front of 20,000 people, it barely mentions a, a, in his diary what happened. If I murdered someone in front of 20,000 people, I'd be like, your diary had a rough day. But George Washington instead, just again, barely mentions it. And we always take our heroes in America, we dip them in granite, and we hold them up to worship them. And we do them a huge disservice. Because anyone who you look up to, whether it's George Washington, any hero you have in your life, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, whoever it might be, have moments where they were scared and terrified, where they didn't know if they could go forward. And they do. And it was the same with George Washington. You know, the story that we tell, especially about the American Revolution, is, you know, we just held hands and the military came together. We dreamed of democracy. We took down the British, the greatest fighting force who ever lived. It's a wonderful, inspiring story, but it is by no means the true story. It is a legend and myth, and we're a country founded on legends and myths, and the legends and myths we love most are our own. Back then, you think we're divided today? We were just as divided back then. In 1776, in New York City, there were nearly as many loyalists on the, on the British side as there were patriots on the American side. And the people you were, you know, were your neighbors. You didn't know if they wanted to kill you. You had no idea. It was the same in our own military. There were just lots of regiments, as Massachusetts one, Virginia one, you know, Connecticut one. We weren't some unified army at the beginning. And, in fact, there's a scene in the book where you see George Washington uh, brings all of his troops, trying to bring them together in Harvard Square, in Harvard Yard in Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts regiment sees the uniforms of the Virginia regiment, which has something frilly on their uniforms, start making fun, mouthing off. Fight breaks out, and George Washington races in, sees his own men fighting, grabs them, shaking them, saying, what are you doing? Why, stop fighting with each other. We're on the same team. If ever there were a metaphor for where we are today, there it is. And we have to remember that our greatest heroes are the ones that pull us together, not to pull us apart. And 
speaking of that hero, it's amazing to watch George Washington in that moment. Because, you know, we love to tell this great story that George Washington is the greatest leader who ever lived. But if you look at the real history of it, if you really take it apart, you can see that George Washington, in the very first battle, the Battle of Brooklyn in 1776, when the British invade, we get our butts kicked. We don't win. We get our butts kicked. George Washington gets out generals. He doesn't have the experience of the British generals. In fact, he gets pinned down. He's got the British in front of him. He's got the East River behind him. This is the moment George Washington should die. There's nowhere to run. He should die in this moment. And instead, George Washington does the best thing he always does. He adapts. He plans a daring escape in the middle of the night. And as a fog rolls in on the East River, they commandeer every boat they can find along the East River. And one by one, slowly start putting their men aboard these boats. But what happens is something really incredible, is George Washington won't get on any of the boats until he makes sure that his men, even the lowest ones, are aboard first. They see him risking his life for theirs. And not that that's the magic moment that brings America together. There are plenty before and plenty after. But boy, does that show you what a leader is. It shows you. I love the when you read the first conspiracy, you get to see the secret plot against George Washington. But what I love even more uh, is that you get to see the depth of George Washington's character in this book. And it's so vital today, especially as we think of our own leaders. And Meltzer is so right. And the nation was deeply divided. Some estimate a third were with the British crown, a third were with the patriots, and a third were just hiding under their chairs, hoping it would blow over. And by the way, we have a terrific hour on the war inside Ben Franklin's house. The book was The Loyal Son by Daniel Mark Epstein. And it turns out Ben Franklin and his son were on opposing sides. The son was the royal governor of New Jersey, and Ben Franklin implored him to join the Patriots. He did not. And Franklin's own son ended up in a terrible prison in Litchfield, Connecticut, two years in solitary, and then ultimately exiled to England. The father and son never reconciled. So it is so true what Brad Meltzer said. The country, well, it was divided at its birth. When we come back, we'll continue with Brad Meltzer. The book is The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. Turn to best-selling author and friend of this show, Brad Meltzer. When we left off, Brad was telling us about the depth of George Washington's character from his book, The First Conspiracy. One of my favorite stories from the book. It's one of the last experiences I had. I was in uh, Kennebunkport, Maine, uh, a number of months ago, honoring Barbara Bush, who was a dear friend of, of my wife and I. We'd done a lot of literacy work with Mrs. Bush. There was no politics about it. Her dream was to teach everyone to read, whether you were old, whether you were young, black, white, Hispanic, immigrant, whatever you were from, that's how you unlock the American dream. I loved her for that dream. And we were honoring Mrs. Bush after she passed away. And now we know that President George H.W. Bush is sick. And we know what's happening at this point. It was a couple months ago, a few months ago, I should say. 
and they bring us into, um, they, they told me that they were bringing in some of his favorite authors to read to him. And they asked me to come in and read to him. And I said, I'd be honored. And I go into the office and, um, and we know what's happening, right? This is the end. And it's me and my wife. It's President Bush is there, his service dog, Sully, Secret Service leave, leave us alone. And we can tell what's about that. And they, in fact, they tell me that, listen, he's, he's sleeping a lot these days. And he's going to fall asleep within about 10 minutes. So just you'll be in there 10 minutes. And that, I said, that'd be, I'd be honored. And I walk in his office. There's a stack of about half a dozen books piled on his desk. One of them is my book, The First Conspiracy. He had given me a blurb on the book. President Clinton had given me a blurb on the book. Um, but this book, I give it to him, sent it to him months and months ago. This one looks like it's been read like over and over. It just looks dog-eared. And I say, sir, you want to read this book? And he's not really talking much back then. He says, mm-hmm. He can say, mm-hmm. And I pick up my copy of The First Conspiracy, and I brought this section, one of my favorite sections to read in there, is where George Washington, for the very first time, has the Declaration of Independence read to his troops. And sure enough, in 10 minutes, President Bush has fallen asleep. And then I get to those words, those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in that moment, President Bush's eyes pop open. He's wide awake, locked on me, like as if the Declaration of Independence is just part of his lifeblood. And I get to the end of the chapter, and I say, sir, you want to read another chapter? And he says, uh-huh. And I, we get to the end of that one. I say, sir, you want to read another? Uh-huh. And then another? Uh-huh. And we go through, and instead of being there for 10 minutes, I'm there for a full hour. And when I'm done, I shake his hand. I say thank you. I know it's the last time I'm ever going to see him. I thank him personally for what he's done for me and for the country. And we leave there. And I can tell you that when President Bush passed away, one of the things that struck me was that in so many of the tributes to him, I saw one word that was used over and over, which was this word, decency, decency. And yes, that's because he was such a decent guy. But it's also because I think as a culture right now, we're starving for decency. No politics about it. Whatever side you're on, Democrat or Republican, we're starving for decency. And I think it's why we love those leaders like George Washington, like George Bush, leaders who are modest and who are humble. Uh, and I think right now on social media, we celebrate those in our culture who are good at calling attention to themselves, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, who write in all caps and multiple exclamation points telling you that they have all the answers. But our best leaders are the modest, hardworking ones. Uh, and I think that when I worked on the first conspiracy, one of the great things that I was able to do was to get that reminder for myself in the form of George Washington. And with that, I'd like to read for you from the first chapter, the opening scene, the prologue of the first conspiracy. New York, New York, April 1776. The trap is set. It's quiet on this night. Moonlight shines over a clearing in a dense wood. The silence is broken by the drumbeat of hooves in the distance, growing steadily louder. Soon a dozen uniformed men on horseback emerge from the blackness, followed by a dark-covered coach. The party halts not far from a large wooden manor house that sits at the clearing's edge. A few of the riders dismount and prime their muskets, standing guard. They scan the clearing, apparently thinking all is safe. They're wrong. A moment later, the coach door opens, and a man in a long coat steps out from the darkness. His name is George Washington, 
the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The trap is planned for him. He has no idea it's coming. For the last nine months since the day he was appointed to his command, Washington has had a nearly impossible task. Organize a scattered mess of backwards militias and untrained volunteers into a functioning national army. And not just into any army. This small, inexperienced, poorly equipped army needs to stand up to what is probably the biggest and most powerful military force in the world. By any normal measure, they don't stand a chance. And Washington knows this, just as he knows that with every decision he makes, thousands of young soldiers' lives could be lost. Tonight, even more is at risk. Washington has just arrived in the western woods of Manhattan, about two miles north from New York City's bustling commercial district that covers the island's southern tip. He's just finished a week-long journey from Boston, and he's here now to fortify the city against the first major British offensive of the war. What he's facing is terrifying. Sometime in the next few weeks or months, the massive fleet of the vaunted British Navy will swarm into New York Harbor. Hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of soldiers prepared to invade the city. They're coming. It's just a question of when. The colonies have placed all of their hope and trust in him. It is up to this one man, George Washington, to lead the small Continental Army and withstand the massive attack. Tonight, among the soldiers accompanying Washington, a few are dressed differently than the rest, in short blue and white coats with small brass buttons. They are known as the lifeguards, an elite group of specially trained soldiers who are handpicked to serve as Washington's bodyguards. He takes special pride in these soldiers, and he trusts them above all others. In the faint moonlight, Washington slowly walks toward the nearby manor house, which will serve as his headquarters for the next few critical weeks before the British attack. And what George Washington doesn't know is that here in Manhattan, the coming battle isn't the only thing he should fear. There are other enemies waiting for him, enemies more sinister than even the British Army. At this exact moment, three miles away due south in the New York Harbor, a ship is anchored in the darkness. On board is one of the most powerful men of the colonies, the exiled governor of New York, and he is masterminding a clandestine plan to strike a knife into the heart of the colony's rebellion. In the dead of night, small boats carrying spies shuttle back and forth to him, delivering intelligence from shore. At the same time, two miles away from where Washington now stands, the mayor of New York City, working in concert with the governor, carries a secret cache of money. His plan? To tempt Washington's soldiers to betray their army and their country in a breathtaking act of treason. And several blocks from the mayor's office in one of the city's underground jails, three prisoners whisper to each other in a dank cell out of earshot of the guards. They have no idea that their quiet murmurs could change the future of the continent. They are all players in an extraordinary plot, a deadly plot against George Washington. Most extraordinary of all, some of the key members of this plot are in George Washington's own inner circle, the very men in whom he has placed his greatest trust. You could call it America's first great conspiracy, but at this moment, America doesn't yet exist. Some of the details of this scheme are still shrouded in mystery, but history does provide enough clues for an astonishing story. This is a story of soldiers, spies, traitors, redcoats, turncoats, criminals, prostitutes, politicians, great men, terrible men, and before it's over, the largest public execution ever to take place on North American shores. It all happens amazingly within days of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's not all. The discovery of this plot and the effort to investigate it 
led colonial authorities to devise new systems of intelligence gathering and counterespionage. In many ways, this strange plot against George Washington would lead to the establishment of a whole new field of American spycraft, now known as counterintelligence. At the center of it is a deadly conspiracy against one man, the man on whose life the very future of America depends. This is Brad Meltzer. You're listening to Our American Stories. And thank you to Brad for that reading and for his terrific book, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington, available at bradmeltzer.com and everywhere that books are sold. This is Lee Habib, Brad Meltzer, The Story of George Washington, and The Secret Plot to Kill Him, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, and history is one of our favorite subjects. And all of our history segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history... In 1937, Amelia Earhart disappeared. Take it away, Faith. From a young age, Amelia Earhart had a sense of adventure. Her and her younger sister Grace would run around and play outside wearing bloomers. Attire not normal for nice little girls. Earhart went against the grain of traditional gender roles. She played basketball, took an auto repair course, and briefly attended college. And in December 1920, Earhart took her first airplane ride in California with famed World War I pilot Frank Hawks. From then on, she was hooked. Here is history curator Dorothy Cochrane. From the time Amelia was young, she knew that she wanted to do something different. She became enamored with aviation and set her sights on that. Amelia Earhart learned to fly from Netta Snook, one of the rare female instructors of the era. She took a number of odd jobs just to be able to afford her flight lessons. And she drove trucks and she was a photographer. Shortly after taking her first flights, she began record setting. Amelia had many interests prior to her aviation accomplishments. She had been a pre-med student, nurse's aide during the outbreak of the Spanish flu, telephone operator, truck driver, social worker, and writer. But she loved aviation, and when she was 25, she bought her first airplane in 1922. That year, she set a woman's altitude record, the first woman to fly above 14,000 feet. As her fame grew, she was soon dubbed Lady Lindy, after Charles Lindbergh, known as Lucky Lindy. After Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, 
pilot Amy Guest expressed interest in being the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean. After deciding that the trip was too perilous for her to undertake, she offered to sponsor the project, suggesting that they find another girl with the right image. While at work one afternoon in April 1928, Earhart got a phone call from Captain Hilton H. Rayleigh, who asked her, Would you like to fly the Atlantic? On June 17, 1928, Earhart accompanied the pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot and mechanic Louis Gordon on the flight. Nominally as a passenger, but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. Stoltz did all the flying. Had to. I was just baggage. Like a sack of potatoes, Earhart said. Maybe someday, I'll try it alone. She was inspired. Earhart consistently worked to promote opportunities for women in aviation. In 1929, after placing third in the All-Women's Air Derby, the first transcontinental air race for women, Earhart helped to form the 99s, an international organization for the advancement of female pilots, which still exists to this day. As of 2018, there were 155 99 chapters across the globe. In five years, she had accomplished a lot. The great solo transatlantic flight still called to her. And on May 20th, 1932, Amelia Earhart climbed into her single-engine Lockheed Vega 5B. Taking off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, she was attempting to be the first woman to make the flight. Her plan was to fly into Paris. However, due to some technical and weather complications, things changed. Here is Amelia Earhart recounting her trip. I took off the famous Harbor Grace runway at dusk, about 7.30, I believe. I flew for a couple of hours while sunset uh, lasted, and then two more hours as the moon came up over a bank of clouds. I had fair weather for four hours. Then I ran into a storm which was one of the most severe I have ever been in. I milled around in the storm for probably an hour and with difficulty kept my course. I had been troubled with my exhaust manifold burning through all night. A weld broke shortly after I left Harbor Grace and I could see the damage increasing as the night wore on. I found specific thunderstorms probably three or four hundred miles off the coast of Ireland. I believe I saw land first about the middle. I decided to come down anyway in the best available pasture. I got down without any trouble and taxied to the front door of a surprised farmer's cottage. After receiving a real Irish welcome, I took a Paramount plane to London and there received a real English welcome. In just under 15 hours, and about 2,000 miles later, she landed north of Derry, Northern Ireland. She had made history. After her great Irish welcome, she was off to London. I've done it. Those were Lady Lindy's words when she got out of her machine 
is a field near the little village of Calmore, and all the villagers cheered her. Isn't she amazing? She doesn't look as though she's just battled with the elements for 2,000 miles in one of the most wonderful flights ever made. After staying the first night in Londonderry, she flew on as a passenger next day to London. At Hanworth, the American ambassador is present to greet her, still in her flying kit, since she carried no change of clothing and had only $20 in her pocket. And now, from the American embassy where she is staying, she emerges on the morrow to go shopping and to provide herself with feminine garments to replace the masculine attire in which she made her historic flight. Even after such a great feat, people were still concerned with her not-so-feminine appearance. But that did not downplay the outstanding accomplishment of this solo transatlantic flight. Her welcome home to New York was the stuff of celebrities. All New York turned up to greet her. Mayor Walker honored and welcomed her. You remember that some five years before you took off, when Colonel Lindbergh made his solo flight across the Atlantic, and coined the aeronautical we, that it remained of the masculine gender for some five years thereafter until you took off. And it seems to me as if you have at last cleaned up that aeronautical we and taken the sex out of it. <laughs> Ms. Earhart, you are truly and indeed welcome in the city of New York. She had taken the sex out of the accomplishment. It was now something anyone could do. As the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic, Earhart received the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, which is a military decoration awarded for heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in an aerial flight. She also received the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover. It gives me a very great deal of pleasure to present you with this rarely conferred medal. The whole of America is proud of you and your performance. I do thank you sincerely. I fear my exploit was not worth so great an honor. Amelia Earhart, as humble as ever. Her journey did not end there. In fact, later that year, she became the first woman to fly across the U.S., starting in Los Angeles, California, and landing in Newark, New Jersey. It took me about 19 hours and a few minutes to uh, make the trip. I wish I could have done it faster. Never satisfied and always competing against herself, Amelia Earhart had flown her way into history. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith, and what a story. My goodness, the accomplishments, the distinguished flying cross, and the first woman to ever get it, and she got that from Congress. And when she got an award from the President of the United States, said, I feel my exploit was not worthy of such an honor. And when you listen to her, and that was her. We love doing that, bringing you the actual voices of people. I particularly love those old audio reels because it's just, well, it's not perfect audio, but my goodness, who cares? It's real. And she was the first to fly across the United States as well, 19 hours and a few minutes. And when asked about that accomplishment, she said, I wish I would have done it faster. And always the competitor, it 
deep competitive zeal and nature. And on this day in history in 1937, Amelia Earhart disappeared, never to be heard from again. The day of her actual death? Well, it's unknown. This amazing story here brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, here on Our American Stories. He didn't even have a map The Rocky Mountains he called home He only lived just further roam Carson, Carson, old Kit Carson Mountain man in buckskin pan Help keep this country free This is Our American Stories and you are listening to Fess Parker singing old Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is one of the most complex characters in American history. We stumbled upon his story in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Creating and Civilizing the American West by Phil Lanchett. And we've done some stories on volume one of his great book. Carson's epic adventure in war and exploration embody the American spirit and its struggle for identity, the good, the bad, that come with the great conquest of the American West. All are summed up in this one man's epic life. And now we're about to bring you the story of Kit Carson, and it's driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of gunfighters, highwaymen, and vigilantes, and one of America's best storytellers about the American West. The mountain men were responsible for blazing nearly every trail to the Pacific coast, for discovering the natural wonders of the trans-Mississippi West, and for providing the muscle that fueled the fur trade. Yet few gained national recognition. An outstanding exception is Kit Carson, who becomes the most famous mountain man of them all. Kit Carson is portrayed heroically in books and articles and as a character in movies. He is also the subject of a television series. He is one of those figures who made us proud to be an American and whetted the youthful appetite for grand adventures. Carson is present at the creation, it seems. He has witnessed the dawn of the trans-Mississippi American West in all its vividness and brutality. Place names throughout the West recall Kit Carson. There's Carson Pass and the Carson River in the Sierras. In Nevada, there's Carson Valley and Carson City, the capital of Nevada. There's the military post Fort Carson and the town Kit Carson in Colorado. One of Colorado's highest mountains is Kit Carson Peak in the Sangre de Cristo Range. And in Taos, New Mexico, there's Kit Carson Park. 
Christopher Houston Carson is born in a log cabin on Christmas Eve, 189, in Madison County, Kentucky, the same year in the same state in which Abraham Lincoln is born. The 11th in a line of 15 siblings, he is nicknamed Kit while still an infant, and the name sticks. When he is two, his Scotch-Irish family picks up and migrates westward to a farm near Boone's Lick, Missouri, home of the Daniel Boone clan. Here's Memphis native Hampton Sides, author of the national bestseller, Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. His family was good friends with the Boone family. They intermarried. These were backwoodsmen. They were rough and ready folks who uh, were in search of opportunity. For their own safety, the Carsons and other pioneers at Boone's Lick dwell in a state of perpetual vigilance. They live in sturdy cabins built near forts and well-armed sentries patrol constantly. All cabins are designed with rifle, loopholes, or firing ports in case of an Indian attack. Everyone knew a family whose child or mother had been carried off by Indians. Kit's sister, Mary, recalls, we would carry bits of red cloth with us to drop if we were captured by Indians so our people could trace us. Despite all this, the young Kit Carson plays with Indian children whose parents come to Boone's Lick to trade goods. From an early age, Kit learns that Indians are not monolithic, that tribes could differ substantially and violently from one another, and that each group must be dealt with separately on its own terms. Kit is not quite nine when his father is killed while felling a tree and the large Carson family is left in desperate straits. Kit drops out of school to work full-time on the family farm and hunts in his spare time to help put meat on the table. At 14 years old, Kit is apprenticed at a saddlery. The teenager hates both the work and the confinement in the saddle shop, but it proves to be a blessing in disguise. Many of the shop's customers are trappers, traders, teamsters, or scouts on the Santa Fe Trail. They're stirring tales of the way west and what lay over the far horizon sets the boy's imagination afire. Here's the executive director of the Western History Association, Paul Hutton. The West offers boundless opportunity, the freedom from all the restraints of family, all the restraints of a shopkeeper's life, and of course, the promise of adventure, of danger, of excitement. And so he runs away. He, he does a Huck Finn and lights out for the territories. At 16 in August, 1826, Kit turns a boy's adventure into a man's livelihood when he crosses the Missouri border and heads west with a merchant caravan on the newly opened Santa Fe Trail. After 900 miles on the trail, Carson settles in Taos, New Mexico, where he develops fluency in Spanish, French, 
and a half dozen Indian tongues. And he also masters the universal sign language used by Western tribes. And yet, for all his facility with language, Kit Carson is illiterate. Taos is the capital of the southwestern fur trade, teeming with trappers, Americans, Frenchmen, Canadians, all of them scruffy and sunburned after months spent trapping in the Rockies. Carson wanted to be a part of this fraternity of men, and these greasy, grizzled, hairy, often drunk, international cast of characters who knew the rivers of the West and had been to all these amazing places. Uh, he wanted to be one of these guys as quickly as they'd have him. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson, his story, here on Our American Stories. A mountain man's a lonely man and he leaves a lot behind It ought to have been different, but you oftentimes will find that the story doesn't always go the way you had in mind. And we return to the life of Kit Carson, as told and driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Let's pick up where we left off. In 1829, and not yet 20 years old, Carson joins a fur trapping brigade of 40 mountain men who venture into Arizona, most of which is still untouched by fur trappers. There probably was not a more dangerous profession in America at that time uh, than being a mountain man. There was the danger of grizzly bears, hypothermia, starvation. These men went into trackless wilderness for months at a time, all in pursuit of beaver pelts. But the greatest reason why so few mountain men have ventured into Arizona territory are the Apache. The Apache delight in torturing and killing their enemies, especially the nearby Pima and Papago Indians. In this world, the trapper's best chance at survival is for himself to adapt completely and entirely to the wilderness and to know intimately the Indians and their habits and their warfare. If the mountain men could do that, they survived. If not, they died. The West is where races intersect, cultures intersect, sometimes violently, more often not. Kit Carson moves easily in that world. He's not opposed to confronting people straight on and engaging in combat, taking a scalp, if need be, to make a point. But that doesn't mean he couldn't sit down and break bread the very next week. He understood what was expected of him by Native peoples that he came in contact with in terms of peaceful relationships and trade relationships but also in terms of conflict. And he understood that retribution must follow crime and follow it immediately and harshly if one was to survive in this environment. Every summer, 
the big fur companies organized what was known as the Mountain Man Rendezvous. And this was held high in the beaver country. It could be in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. As always happens at these gatherings, various bands of Indians come to trade, gamble, and drink with the mountain men. And it's not uncommon for trappers to take squaws for their wives during this month-long festival. One of the most popular women attending the rendezvous of 1835 is a young Arapaho beauty named Singing Grass. She catches Carson's eye. But another man is equally smitten. He's a very large, swaggering, blustering French-Canadian trapper known as the Bully of the Mountains. He's also an expert shot. Singing Grass chooses Carson and rejects the Frenchman. Over the next several days, Frenchman goes on a bender and begins to menace anyone who crosses his path. After being ignored by other mountain men, he strolls over to Carson's camp and announces how he particularly enjoys thrashing Americans. Carson springs to his feet and exclaims, I'll rip your damn guts. Frenchman says nothing but mounts his horse and rides out in front of camp, daring Carson to fight him. Carson quickly jumps on a horse and gallops up to the Frenchman. They stop so close to each other that their horses' heads touch. Both men draw guns and fire at precisely the same moment. The Frenchman's bullet creases Carson's head, taking scalp and hair with it. Carson's bullet goes through the Frenchman's right hand and blows away his thumb, causing him to drop his gun. Carson draws a second pistol and prepares to deliver the coup de grace. Gingerly holding his maimed appendage, the Frenchman begs for his life. Satisfied that he has humiliated him, Carson turns and rides away, says Carson. We won't have any more problems with a bully Frenchman anymore, will we? <laughs> Singing grass and Carson marry after Carson offers her father a bride price of five blankets, three mules, and a gun. Carson is 25 years old. Like many of the trappers, Carson settled down with an American Indian woman. He found that this marriage was certainly uh, a marriage of convenience in the sense that he had someone on the trail with him who helped do all the thousand and one tasks that had to be done. But it was the first love of his life. He was devoted to her. After giving birth to their second daughter in 1840, Singing Grass dies of complications. And then shortly later in an accident, the baby dies. She was a good wife to me, Carson tells a friend years later. I never came in from hunting that she didn't have warm water ready for my cold feet. Adding to Kit's pain, America is experiencing intense growing pains. The era of the mountain man is coming to an end. Decades of trapping has destroyed the beaver population, and the once fashionable beaver hat is now being replaced with one made of silk. 
every summer throughout the 1840s, there were fewer and fewer beaver pelts. And this was a, a consequence of just how amazingly good these guys were at what they did. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. We trapped down the river, but found no beaver. The country was barren. It became necessary to try our hand at something else. The beaver market collapses, and Carson finds himself out of work, widowed, and shouldering the burdens of parenthood alone. He is 29. With his pockets empty and his future uncertain, Kit brings his daughter Adeline east and leaves her with family in Missouri to make sure she receives the education he never had and to protect her from the struggle that lies ahead. But as he boards a whistling steamboat in St. Louis for a trip up the Missouri, his prospects change when he strikes up a conversation with a passenger. How far are you taking her? I am leading an expedition through the Rocky Mountains. You ever been to the mountains, sir? It's a far piece. I'll probably take you where you want to go. Well met, sir. John C. Fremont. Kit Carson. John C. Fremont is an American military lieutenant and an explorer who's about to embark on an expedition to survey and map the American West. And he has yet to hire a guide. Although Fremont has his doubts, he hires Carson on the spot. Carson and Fremont were kind of an odd couple from the start. Fremont is quite well-educated, a very flamboyant guy. Carson, on the other hand, is unassuming, has this wry sense of humor. The boy's gonna make it? He's always giving someone else the credit. Fremont and Carson blaze an overland route to the Pacific, a route that has already been discovered. Carson, join me with the flag. But it's virtually unused by anyone except mountain men and Indians. Look at all that out there, as far as I can see. By May of 1846, the soon-to-be-called Oregon Trail is completed. Here's Sherry Monahan, president of the Western Writers of America. They were the first people to figure out where they could ford rivers, what was the safest route where you didn't have to climb mountains, and they were the ones that led all of the pioneers out to populate and tame the wild west. Dubbed the Pathfinder, Fremont's name reaches Lewis and Clark's status, and Carson's heroics become American legend. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson. You're listening to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he's one of our best storytellers in this country. More on the life of Kit Carson after these messages.
continue now with the story of Kit Carson. One of the things that Carson did during one of the expeditions with Fremont was they encountered some uh, Hispanic uh, wayfarers who had had their horses stolen from them. The New Mexicans have been attacked by Indians, and uh, the kind of mindset of the frontiersman was that you didn't allow this kind of behavior to go on, that you had to make a statement. Rather spontaneously, Carson decides to pursue these Indian horse thieves. The Indians were a large group, but nevertheless, Carson and his companion snuck up on the band, killed several of them, retrieved all the horses, brought back the horses, and several Indian scalps to Fremont's camp. This really impressed Fremont. Carson risking his life for a complete stranger. In August 1844, Fremont has his expedition reports bound and published on nearly every page. He lavishes praise upon his fearless scout. Carson became a great romantic figure as an explorer, as a guide, as a frontiersman, as an Indian fighter. In these books that were supposed to be reports, they were actually grand adventure tales. These books were bestsellers in their day and were used as handbooks by hundreds of thousands of people going west. Here's American West historian Sally Denton. Immigrants would be in their wagons holding that and it would say, this is where you're going to find fresh water. This is where there's going to be grass where you can graze your cattle. It was really uh, the first uh, map of its kind in America. But following the unlikely pattern of his life, Carson's mission to map the Western territories is about to take on even greater significance. An unexpected dispatch arrives from the White House. It's from President Polk and the Secretary of War. President Polk is determined to push America's western border all the way to the Pacific. California. It says we are to continue our fine work in the West. Carson and Fremont's exploratory expedition has just become a military mission. I shall assert the right to that portion of our territory which lies beyond the Rocky Mountains. President Polk had a vision of what America should look like. He wanted all of it. And he vowed that he would get it all, either by purchasing or, or by war, within one term. This is the execution of Thomas Jefferson's vision for continent-wide expansion. And the term manifest destiny is coined 42 years after Jefferson acquired the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon in 1803. On April 25th, 1846, Mexican cavalry attacks a group of U.S. soldiers. 18 days later, Congress declares war on Mexico. It's the beginning of the Mexican War. Navy warships close in on the California coast, and Army troops advance from the east. Fremont and Carson arrive in California, and there in Northern California, they support the Bear Flaggers in the Bear Flaggers' capture of Sonoma. As a reward for his valuable service, 
Carson rides to Washington, D.C. with a thick packet of sealed letters to deliver the good news to President Polk. But on his way, a greater duty redirects his path. Here's American frontier historian Derwood Ball. Kit Carson ran into uh, Stephen Watts Carney leading first United States dragoons overland from Santa Fe to help finish the uh, conquest of California. Whoa. I'm going back to the West Coast. Kearney ordered me to join him as his guide. I'd done so. It made me believe he had the right to order me. Kit now leads General Stephen Carney and 300 of his cavalry troopers to California. And one of those cavalry troopers happens to be the son of the famous Sacagawea. Carney also has a direct connection to the Lewis and Clark expedition. He is married to the daughter of William Clark. Now, before they get to California, they discover from some Mexicans they captured near the Arizona-California border that there's a revolt going on in California against American rule. In December of 1846, Carney orders an attack at Mule Hill in San Pasquale, some 35 miles north of San Diego. But his weary men and exhausted mules that they're riding are outnumbered by well-trained Mexican lancers on fine horses. Americans are trapped on Mule Hill with no cover and dwindling supplies. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Don't take the shot unless you got it. It's a desperate situation. They've run out of food. The only thing they have to eat are the mules. And the only reinforcements are about 30 miles away in San Diego. Despite all this, in the finest tradition of the U.S. Cavalry, Kearney orders a charge. The battle that erupts is known as the Battle of San Pasquale. And Carson is in the thick of it from beginning to end. By the end of the second day, Kearney has lost 18 men and a dozen others, including Kearney himself, have been wounded. Kearney's last hope is to send a messenger on foot through enemy lines to get help from Marines and sailors in San Diego. Carson. We need supplies. I'll take care. Without hesitation, Kit Carson follows orders once again. When darkness falls, Carson, an Indian scout, and a Lieutenant Edward Beale begin their journey. Just before dawn, the three split up to avoid detection. We need to get barefoot. Before dawn, the three men begin their journey, but they begin it by creeping and crawling for several miles through enemy lines. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. I had to crawl about two miles. And having had the misfortune to lose our shoes, we had to travel barefooted in a country covered with prickly pear and rocks. And then they split up and take three different routes, about 30 miles each, 
to San Diego. I need to speak with the commander of this outpost immediately. Within hours, Commodore Stockton sends a force of 200 Marines and sailors to San Pasqual. And the Mexican army, seeing them come, gallops away. Kit stays behind, unable to walk for a week because of the condition of his feet. A year later, the U.S. concludes the Mexican War and, through the Mexican Cession, acquires another 500,000 square miles of territory, adding some 20-25% more territory to the United States. And now the United States truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest Destiny is now a reality. And when we come back, the final segment in this epic story of Kit Carson. continue with the final segment of the life of Kit Carson. Kit Carson went to the West for the freedom and openness to escape from the constraints of society back home, back in the States. But then, of course, he brought it all with him. The dream of a continental nation has been met, and America stretches from sea to sea. The West is transformed and he sees it all, but he's also one of the major instruments that brings about that change. Carson is once again dispatched to Washington, D.C. He arrives at St. Louis and then catches a train to deliver Fremont's field reports to President Polk in May of 1847, some three months after his departure. Washington, D.C., at the time of Kit Carson's arrival, was becoming much more sophisticated. And just imagine, this man who had been living most of his life out on the frontier has got to come back to this society. He had to be very uncomfortable. Off the trail, Kit is a shy, unassuming man, content to keep to himself. But in Washington, his celebrity is overwhelming thanks to his real-life heroics and some 70 Kit Carson dime novels that are consumed by Americans from coast to coast. Everyone wants to meet Kit Carson, and that's because Kit Carson 
is the very living, breathing symbol of the American frontier and of our expansion westward. And of course, everyone wants to hear from his lips what the opportunities are for America in the West. The runaway apprentice has come a long ways. Carson's married three times and fathers ten children. His first two wives are Indian squaws, but his third wife is a beautiful, slender, 14-year-old Mexican girl named Josefa. She is 18 years his junior. Carson converts to Catholicism and the two are married in 1843 in the Taos Parish Church. Carson thinks he might spend his remaining years as a peaceful family man. No such luck. The wave of migration continues to surge west. Clashes between settlers and Indians escalate into what becomes known as the Indian Wars. We come from the Santa Fe Trail. There's a woman and child, they're both missing. Would you help us? Duty calls Kit Carson once again. A Missouri trader named James White is headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his wife, Ann, and infant daughter. When their party is attacked by Apache Indians, James is killed, and the infant and the wife, Ann, are taken captive. Carson is illiterate, but if there's a story to be read on the ground, there's no better man to do it. The formative experience for Kit Carson was when he worked as a, a mountain man. His ability to track animals then became a very important asset in his ability to track human beings. Finally, late on the 12th day, Carson sees plumes of smoke curling skyward in the distance. There's no time to lose. Yeah. Yeah. When Carson discovers the Apache camp, he finds Ann White dead, lying on her back with a steel-tipped arrowhead daubed with rattlesnake blood struck through her heart. She's still warm. Couldn't have been dead more than five minutes. She has been horribly abused, covered with bruises and lacerations. And she's also been gang-raped day after day by her Apache captors. Carson finds something else. Here's a quote from his autobiography. We found a book in camp in which I was represented as a, a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. Mrs. White must have read it, knowing that I lived nearby, must have prayed for my appearance in order that she might be saved. Ann White's infant is never found, and the incident haunts Carson until the day he dies. The way that you wander is the way that you choose. Sunshine or thunder A man will always wonder where the fair wind But the Whites are just a drop in the ocean among the tidal wave of travelers rolling westward, a wave that can be traced back to the discovery of gold in California. 
news of which Kit Carson carried on one of his courier missions back east. In 1849 alone, some 100,000 Americans have set out for California, and the numbers will only increase. Carson was so effective in fighting the Indians and in making peace with them that by 1853, his appointed Indian agent to the Utes, a band New Mexican officials brand the most difficult to manage in the territory. The Utes were a very special tribe to Kit Carson. He absolutely loved them. He rode with them, uh, he hunted with them, he knew them quite well. When the Civil War erupts in 1861, Carson resigns as an Indian agent and joins the Union as a colonel of the New Mexico Volunteers. He commands two battalions at the Battle of Valverde in 1862, which slows the Confederates from an advance up the Rio Grande Valley. Now, the Apache and Navajo take advantage of the Civil War and renew their raids in New Mexico. Over the previous year alone, more than 30,000 sheep have been stolen and uh, some 300 people killed by the Indians. Carson leads expeditions against both tribes. Carson lived in New Mexico his entire adult life, and public enemy number one was the Navajo. Everybody in New Mexico, every Hispanic person, had some friend or family member who had been killed by the Navajo or had been stolen by the Navajo. And I think he thought a reservation on the Pecos was as good as any that had been put forward as to how to end this cycle of violence. The campaign against the Navajo ends with the removal of 9,000 tribe members to a reservation in New Mexico. The Navajo called the removal the Long Walk, and about 200 of them die on the journey. The 53-year-old Carson rides in the vanguard along with some of his favorite Ute warriors or longtime bitter enemies of the Navajo. Carson doesn't like clearing out the Navajo, but the alternative is to ignore their raids in the midst of the Civil War. Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning Indian novelist in Scott Mamaday. He knew the Indians. He had known them from an early time as a mountain man. He probably knew Indians better than any other white man of his time. He knew what uh, they would stand and how they could be brought to terms with the army. And, uh, you know, he didn't hesitate, I think, to, to act on the basis of his knowledge. Before the Civil War ends, Carson is promoted to Brigadier General. Following the war, Carson returns to his family, but duty keeps calling. In 1868, with chest pain so bad he could hardly breathe, Carson brings a delegation of Ute chiefs to Washington to negotiate a treaty, establishing a permanent reservation on the very ground the tribe claims as its own. Here he is, this Indian fighter, known for his various campaigns. And yet, he was also a peacemaker and a diplomat. I think the trick to understanding Carson is to go back to that idea that, for him, there was no such thing as, as the American Indian. 
he sided with certain groups and other groups were his enemy throughout his life. Shortly after Carson returns home, his wife, Josefa, gives birth to their eighth child, but complications set in. And within two weeks, his wife dies, and he's holding her in his arms. Then, just one month later, on the afternoon of May 23rd, 1868, Carson's aortic aneurysm ruptures. <coughs> Calls out suddenly from his pallet of buffalo robes on the floor. Uh, Doc. Uh, adios. Kit Carson passes from life into legend. And great job to the whole team, and thank you, Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and thank you also to Mr. Phil Anschutz and his terrific book. By the way, get it if you can. Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2. So many great stories. We're going to get to a bunch of them. Thomas Jefferson, who starts it all. Of course, Tecumseh, Chief Red Cloud, Brigham Young, Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Mark Twain. Those stories coming up over the next weeks and months here on Our American Stories. <laughs>